0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
1: I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Your daily dose of conversations on the news, politics, the economy, and arts and culture. Safety. Safety. That's a topic that's on the minds of principals, teachers, parents and students as kids head back to the classroom. In the wake of the Uvalde, Texas and Highland Park mass shootings, many districts are taking additional safety precautions. In some cases, that means a stronger police presence, but research shows that isn't always the answer. So what are some solutions? Here to offer some insight is Misheri Keels, Associate Professor of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. She's also founding director of the Trauma Responsive Educational Practices, or TREP, Project. Also with us is Benjamin Feigenberg, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He works with the U of C's Crime Lab. Professor Keels, define trauma-responsive educational practices. What exactly does that mean?
2: Basically, it's saying that most of the time when we're seeing um, repeated disciplinary um, issues and challenges in schools or escalating behaviors um, from students, that oftentimes underlying that those behaviors are challenges with self-regulation or challenges with um, emotional dysregulation, stress, it could be traumatic experiences that one has had. And so it's advocating for the idea of universally always the first go-to is trying to first um, calm and regulate the individual and then pretty quickly trying to kind of figure out, like, what's wrong? What's happening? Mm -hmm. What have you experienced? And how can I help with that in order to bring you into a state of regulation? And as much as possible return you to the classroom and to learning
1: so in your research then how do you think schools should begin thinking about school safety
2: well a lot of what we know is that relationships 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 is critical to school safety because for me as a student if i care about and i feel like i belong to this classroom community and to the school community. I'm going to try to protect that community. I am going to say something if I see something because I trust the adults in the building. I want to keep that community safe. I'm going to um, know what's happening with my peers. I'm also going to feel myself mm-hmm. if I have a problem, if I have an issue That my school community has people in it that I can turn to for support. Um, There's all of those pieces of it. And also if teachers, if educators have a strong relationship with their students, they can know and sense when something has shifted and when something is off. And then they can say, I see you. I see that something's wrong. And kids are going to be more likely to say something about what might be wrong rather than suffering in silence.
1: So your emphasis then being on uh, being proactive rather than reactive.
2: Absolutely. Most of, um, you know, we have this um, consistent thing that's happened time and time again when any of these uh, rare but awful events of school shootings have happened, is that pretty quickly the members of the school community say, we knew, you know, we knew something was coming. We knew something was off. We knew that student was having a problem. Almost all of these incidents, there is a long trail of warning signs Um, and somebody in that student themselves or their family reaching out for help and support and not getting what they needed in order to shift things. So absolutely being proactive
1: is what's needed. Professor Feigenberg, let's let's get you in here. What exactly does restorative justice mean? I've heard that thrown out as is this alternative to punishment in schools, but I kind of have trouble picturing what restorative justice actually looks like in practice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So restorative justice is sort of a a broad philosophy, uh, often termed restorative practices in the educational context. Uh, And, you know, I think the key focus uh, is on, you know, still holding uh, individuals who have, you know, engaged in misbehavior accountable, uh, but doing so in a way that's productive, you know, that repairs harm between those offenders and the victims uh, and that you know encourages perspective taking, right? Really tries to repair relationships. Uh, I think, rather than purely act in a punitive way, uh, as has you know typically been more common uh, in terms of punishment practices.
1: Right. So, so what have you found in your research with the uh, University of Chicago Crime Lab? Sure. So,
0: yeah, yeah, I've been working with Anjali Adukia and Fatima Momeni uh, on a project where we've looked at uh, the adoption of restorative practices uh, by Chicago Public Schools and the Office of Social Emotional Learning over the last roughly eight years. Uh, And we found, you know, some preliminary, but I think uh, pretty important results uh, in terms of the effects that these practices have, both in reducing, you know, suspensions within the school context, reducing arrests, but also uh, at the same time improving how students behave outside of school, so reducing the arrests that we see outside of school and also changing perceptions within the school. So we see that after the adoption of these restorative practices, that students report improvements in school climate, so greater trust in their teachers, an improved sense of belonging, uh, a greater sense of safety. And so I think this just suggests, you know, there isn't this sort of necessary trade-off between... Right. School safety and then taking uh, a less punitive approach to how we deal with misbehavior in the classroom and on school grounds. Mm -hmm.
1: Professor Keels, children are dealing with an unprecedented level of stress right now because of COVID. Also, this rise in school shootings that they've had to see. How do you recommend that schools factor that in when they're thinking about safety right now?
2: I would also add to those things. They're also dealing with the financial distress so that is an incredibly destabilizing thing because it affects your housing, where, where your meals going to come from, all of those things, that chronic uncertainty. And what schools need to remember as kids come back is that initially everything is going to seem all right. You know, we are socialized to behave as if and to act as if everything's fine. I've got it. There's no problems. There's no issues even when there is a problem, even when there is an issue, we're socialized to act as if everything's okay. Mm -hmm. And the challenge with that is that, well, if I'm dealing with you and something has come up, I assume everything's okay, and so then I assume that you must be behaving this way because you are intentionally trying to disrupt the classroom environment. But if I know that you are actually also actively coping with homelessness, and struggling to figure out, you know, where you're going to sleep each night and your family's moving from home to home, I'm going to understand that acting out behavior very differently. But kids don't walk into school saying, hey, you know, this is what happened to me last night or this is what happened to me this morning. And so that's why you can expect that I'm going to be pretty dysregulated today. And so it's then saying, let's be proactive again, and let's be universal in the idea of understanding and expecting that most kids right now, especially kids in um, economically disadvantaged neighborhoods and communities, are coping with something that might be pretty severe and they need our support.
1: Professor Keels, you've said, overall, just to assume that every kid has some sort of underlying trauma, right? Right. There are some students that have trauma from encounters with police even. So how does the presence of cops in schools fit into creating a trauma-responsive environment?
2: Unfortunately, they don't really fit into creating a trauma-responsive environment, and that's because our most vulnerable students, um, our students most at risk for exhibiting dysregulated behaviors, um, are the ones that are also going to be most anxious about police in schools. And that's because the tremendous rise in the visual documenting of police violence has been a good thing for us being able to clearly say and show what we know has been happening. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good thing. However, for kids, it's on their social media feed. It's, it's They're consuming these images of police violence and videos All the time now, it's social media feed is very personal. It's very immediate. You internalize it, and you have then this constant potential fear and anxiety about any officer that you might come past and how that might affect you, and that creates that anxiety. You're going to then behave in ways that might seem suspicious, that might seem off but you're just anxious about whether you could be the next person um, of violence. And I experienced that too myself. So for me, the idea of, you know, pulling over if, thankfully I have never been stopped in that way, but pulling over if a police was to be tailing me, it's going to immediately increase my anxiety level. Mm -hmm. And I might not, you know, behave in the expected way, not because I've done anything wrong, But because I'm wondering and I'm thinking about all of those times when someone who looks like me, it has ended in a fatality. And so that's the challenge with schools. And they can be replaced with a social worker, with a youth worker, there are many other ways. Yeah.
1: Professor Feigenberg, in your research, does the presence of police prevent
0: incidents in schools? So in our work, we haven't looked directly at the effects of the presence of officers, but I think, you know, from the broader academic literature, what we know is that, you know, there may be some marginal improvements uh, in certain forms of school safety associated with having officers, but that comes with large costs, uh, as has already been discussed, you know, in the form of sort of harsher punishment for relatively low level offenses. And that's particularly the case for, you know, younger students, African American students. And we know that that has, you know, very negative long-run implications on their well-being, on high school graduation, college enrollment. And so in my view, the question is, you know, is there any alternative, right? Do we have, you know, other approaches we can try, like the restorative practices approach that uh, we've been investigating that may achieve the same goals in terms of improving, you know, classroom and school safety, but without these negative repercussions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I see, you know, the presence of school officers as really uh, something of a last resort as a result.
1: Uh, Professor Keels, I I know the TREP project or the Trauma Responsive Environment Project, uh, that it works closely with Chicago public schools and New York public schools to develop safety plans. Briefly talk about that experience.
2: So the um, experience is um, one of trying to, working under pressure. So most of, um, out of the civil unrest that happened, there was tremendous pressures, for schools to really rethink safety and really rethink how police would show up in schools. And so, in that, when we were in that remote environment um, and trying to figure out how we would come back in person and the role that um, school resource officers would play when we came back in person, New York, Chicago. Oakland, L.A., um, Minneapolis, like school districts everywhere across this country, large and small, are trying to figure out this issue. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be able to kind of interface directly with New York and Chicago, um, as well as a few other school districts, as they were rethinking these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, New York's situation shifted after um, the new mayor, um, Eric Adams, came in and you know his um, former relationship with the police department and his decisions regarding that um, police SROs would remain a part of how um, that would play out in New York. Yeah. Chicago was very different. Chicago made it a school-level choice. Um, and so individually, school by school, high school by high school, had to decide whether they would keep both one or none of their SROs. See. And the challenge with that that we found in terms of watching that process play out is that schools that were already advantaged based on their student population and the neighborhoods that they were in were the ones most likely to remove SROs.
0: I
1: see.
2: And the school's that had higher rates of poverty higher percentages of black students were the ones more likely to keep their sros Um, and it was really a high stakes decision to be made at the school level
1: so chicago's approach created more inequality then in, in school police presence
2: yes more inequality so the kids that were already vulnerable before actually have um, more likelihood now, relative likelihood of that interaction and contact yeah. with the police versus the other schools that were able to, that were on the north side and more advantaged communities that removed those. And I will say this, we have we do have schools in um, that had high percentages of have high percentages of black students that removed SROs. Mm-hmm. And one of the anecdotal evidence from one of those schools was when some behavior challenges happened last over last school year, one of the things the principal said was, you know, if we had had that SRO still, this would have been handled much differently and it would have been handled with an increased likelihood of juvenile justice contact, whereas here they had to handle it through regular kind of school-level discipline policies and procedures. So it just slows down and, and interrupts that potential for, you know, disruptive behaviors leading to juvenile justice contact.
1: Professor Feigenberg, how do punitive measures in schools relate to the pipeline uh, to the criminal justice system?
0: Yeah, so I I think, you know, exactly along the lines of what's just been described, right? It's just this concern that, you know, you're going to have, right, some school rules violations, you know, misconduct, classroom disruption that really doesn't rise to the level of what would require the presence of a police officer, you know, when we're not talking about sort of serious violent offenses. but when there's an officer present, you know, even if their objective is only, right, to investigate and, you know, prevent more serious offenses, there's going to be some degree of mission creep. And so I think that's the concern is that when we have SROs on school campuses, they're ultimately going to become involved in... You know, policing these more minor infractions. And that's, again, you know, going to lead to more engagement with the juvenile justice system, which we know has all of these negative long term consequences down the road.
1: Yeah. So what's the solution here, Professor? In your opinion, I mean, so in
0: my yeah. I think in my view, you know, it's really just to try to understand sort of what the portfolio of alternative programs, alternative resources we have are that may achieve improvements in school safety, but without these negative repercussions. And I think, uh, you know, the restorative practices programs that we've been studying aren't a panacea, but they seem to move us in the right direction in terms of improving perceptions of safety, reducing arrests, and also reducing inequality. So disproportionately benefiting uh, those same African-American students who are most harmed, uh, you know, by the presence of SROs in the first place. And so I think, you know, it's sort of a goal of building up evidence, right, experimenting, and then trying to really uh, identify and expand those practices uh, that achieve these dual goals of improving safety, but also uh, improving students' comfort uh, within classrooms, within schools.
1: I'll give you the last word, Professor Keels.
2: I would agree with that. It is A multitude of different supports in schools. One of them starts with building teacher capacity to manage challenging behaviors in the classroom, teachers' capacity to see and recognize when there might be a mental health problem, Mm -hmm. having social workers and youth workers and counselors to refer those kids to when they need that support, figuring out if it's, um, you know, homelessness or other issues happening. So it's really thinking, going deeper. That's in terms of what I say. It's Not focusing on the surface behavior, but going deeper to figure out what's wrong and then how can we help.
1: We've been speaking to Mashiri Keels, who's associate professor for the Department of Human Development at the University of Chicago and founding director of the TREP Project. Also Benjamin Feigenberg, who's associate professor of economics at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Thank you both. We've talked about building trauma-informed school safety plans, but now let's hear about recent changes at one Chicago public school. Hyde Park Academy is one of the schools in the district that successfully removed one of the two budgeted school resource officer positions in 2021. Here to discuss why they pushed for that are Anna Durr and Ling Young, two of the organizers behind the campaign. Anna is a restorative justice coordinator with Southside Together Organizing for Power, or Stop Chicago. Ling is a youth organizer with Stop Chicago. She's also a member of Hyde Park's local school council. So, Ling, you are a former Hyde Park Academy student. What did student interactions with police look like?
3: Well, in a typical Hyde Park uh, school day, uh, multiple different types of students. It's the... Um, honor roll students, nobody really pays attention to but gets uh, uh academic glory that really doesn't know doesn't interact with police officers. They don't interact with general public. But it's the other uh half of the young people which I was a part of a uh, group of young people, um, that interacted with the police officer a little too often due to behavior issues. Yeah. So, um it's all depends on the crowd that you rock with.
1: So what are you hearing from current students? about what interactions with police look like?
3: Little to none, but with some students, they feel like it's a correctional center because the way they are policed in the school.
1: They feel like it's a it's a correctional center. Wow. Anna, talk to us. What exactly does the SRO at Hyde Park Academy do?
4: See, is a lot of things that the SRO officer can't do Okay. to the conduct, due to the conduct code up which is really um, the officer cannot interact in fights with the students unless it's like a weapon. So honestly, it's not nothing that they um, really do for real because it's it's a lot that they can't do. So it's not really beneficial to our students.
1: So you, you said they can't intervene with fights? Yes, they cannot. So what are they doing?
4: That's what. Um. That's exactly what we're. Um, that's what you're trying to figure out. Saying. That's what we're trying to figure <laughs> out.
1: <laughs> like, okay, well, then, what are you doing there? How so? How did the campaign begin then? Uh, to to get one SRO out of the school, Anna.
4: Ling, and um time in first because I came in after oh, okay. uh, her on the campaign. She she far she was the start of it and she got me involved. I see.
1: Okay, Ling, can you pick that up for us? How how did it all begin to to get this um, one officer out?
3: Um, It all started in actually 2020, so I graduated from Hyde Park in 2020, Um, but we, the the class that I had, so we're called Stop Now, so it's a group of young activists, Um, and we felt like we had unfinished business with Hyde Park. I decided to stay home from school and focus my whole summer of being a freshman in college to dedicating to getting cops out of CPS. It started as big as getting cops out of CPS. Um, we got the win of getting the budget cut down, but we got uh, a, uh, what some would say a loss um, by getting that answer of LSCs are supposed to have the answer to um, the cops in the school. So we decided to take it to back home, and we saw that Hyde Park was very um, defunded. They didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot. Uh, and we were still getting renovations, still getting money, uh, but they were renovating the school, the, the structure, but wasn't really, uh, really renovating uh, the lives of the students. So we decided to um, attack the budget when it came to, um, instead of cutting away an uh, art teacher or cutting away uh, another dean, let's come to um, the cops in the schools that don't do nothing, that uh, a lot of students don't see. That uh, if something happens, it's the security guards that are interacting with these young people, not the police officers. So we decided to cut uh, that position of the SRO um, because the young people needed funding.
1: Okay, so money for the position was was put into the creation of a new role Uh, the -hmm. the culture and climate dean. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about that?
3: Um, and that's more on Anna's aspect. So, Anna, do you want to talk about the Carmen of Dean, uh, the uh, the Dean of Climate and Culture?
4: Yes, the Dean of Climate and Culture. He um, was put in possession to come in and make make High Park a more restorative school like changing the culture and like bringing those, bringing those village of people back who actually care about the students and a different way of working through problems, like a social, like create, like we're creating a social, emotional learning space. And I just hope to work with the name even further to see that restorative change in schools. Cause that's more of what we need, not po- policing.
1: Mm-hmm. And to get to this point, I mean, Talk more, perhaps, Ling, about what that looked like. I wonder if you had to talk to parents in the school district.
3: Yeah, so part of our thing was that, uh, especially this summer, was really going out and hitting the streets and talking to some of our Hyde Park parents. Um, The students say a lot, but the parents are very much worried about the safety of the students, which we all are. Um, we are are wanting our children to come back home safely exactly the way they left the home. Yeah.
0: Um,
3: so we saw that a lot of people uh, were saying that police officers are supposed to be in the school or should be in the school due to the traumas that uh, children all around the uh, country were um, were facing, which is a real thing. School shootings are real. There's something that happened yesterday. It was a shooting a block away from Hyde Park. Um and a young a student from High Park got shot, and it was something that we need to address when it comes to trauma and emotional harm. But we have to remember the code of conduct is the policy, the rule that states that they cannot be involved in scholastic behavior. That shooting yesterday mm-hmm. was something that the police officers were supposed to be involved in. Was a police officer is supposed to stop crime, not stop young people from learning or disrupting their learning day. Um. So it was really, it was a fun summer because we really had to, really had a chance to. One, young people were able to prove their parents wrong finally on something, um, and saying that like, no, mom, this policy states that they can't do what you think they were supposed to, they supposed to do to us. They can't touch us. They can't talk to us. They can't even say hey to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but when something goes down, when a crime is committed, that is when we seek um, the help of the police officers. Yeah.
1: And to sum it up for us, why do you want cops out of schools?
4: Exactly. Um, because of that, we need more people in schools who are ready to like actually get to know our young people. Like, how is an officer benefiting our young people if they came in and speak to them? That's not really beneficial. And they see it as, you know, uh, authority and like a deterrent, like, from violence, but it's so many young people that go through so many issues, and we need a peace room. We need a peace room that um, allows them a social and emotional learning space, like Rambaugh restorative justice practitioners, and give the student uh, space to talk about feelings, strong emotions that, you know, give that this space will get them the space to observe that mm-hmm. and regain attention to be able to come back to class. We just need more people that that care about our young people in general.
1: So safety in schools, as we know, it's a lot on parents' minds, on the students' minds themselves, especially right now at the start of the school year. What would you say, Ling, to people who argue more police keeps schools safer?
3: Policy is policy, um, and believe it or not... Um, you should follow policy. The policy, the code of conduct states that they are not allowed to involve themselves in scholastic behavior. If you get put out of class and a police officer confronts you about that issue, he's breaking the code of conduct. So people have this false narrative of what police officers are supposed to do. If two students are fighting a mutual combat, they cannot intervene. If there's mob action, which is uh, one or more persons on another person that is considered a crime. That's when they convene. The only time that police officers are supposed to be present and doing their job in the school is when a crime is committed. Um, so it's always uh, people believe that police officers in schools, that hero method of being able to bring the line between community um, and school, but all it does is uh, continue the school-to-prison pipeline of policing and applying fear to young people and applying fear that uh, I'm criminalized and demonized in the school, but also in the streets. Um, high Park is a majority black schools where a majority of the students are black and have to be criminalized and demonized outside of school. So um, being in school is where it should be a safe haven. Mm-hmm. Police officers should be able to keep you safe and keep you away from the harms of the outside of, of like a school shooting and and crime and drugs and things of that nature, but when it comes to a disturbance, when it comes to being upset and having a bad day, that's when we're supposed to go towards our counselors, our social workers. Um, me and Anna, for example, we are mentors in the school, and we're al- we're able to give those young people inspiration to yeah. want to think about more. So that is what we deserve. That's what young people deserve.
1: Well, um, Lynn, you're, you're currently you're currently leading the campaign to remove the other SRO from Hyde Park yes. Academy, right? How's that going?
3: Um, this is an emotional fight. Um, it is emotionally damaging to um, me as an alumni um, because we're fighting a really good fight. We're trying to be very uh, we as a me and Anna, but also I as the L- uh, and a, a community member, LSC, mm-hmm. um, are trying to really work hard with the school. Um, to release um, some of these um, like false narratives that the school has, but also bring a new thought um, and awakening to High Park that if we come together as a community, if we do this together as a community, can nothing stop us. We could be the old High Park that we used to be. Um, and yeah. understanding that we're going back to a root of trusting each other um, and that's all about restorative justice. The restorative justice is just, uh, trusting your space, trusting the people that you're around. And I feel like a school should be the most trusting place. Um, yeah. Police officers, uh, we have a lot of uh, unsolved murders, a lot of unsolved crime. Um, But you're able to um, give a salary to an officer more than a teacher. There, are The officers that are currently making more than teachers in there um, that are really having to do the independent struggle. And we feel like that uh, before you think about criminalizing young people, let's think about what are the things that you are missing. We're missing more social workers, we're missing more counselors, we're missing um, mentors and deans of climate and culture. Your high park is missing a lot of those things, missing the curriculum that young people would love to enjoy about school. Um, And so we're using, we're saying that the police officers are unnecessary budgeting uh, item at this point. Um, we're yeah. wanting for the cops to be removed and more funding resources of alternative policing but more and um, proving a trusting of the space to be brought back into the school. That is the mission of Cops Out of Hyde Park or Operation Trailblaze and Thunderbird.
1: So to that end, last month, Chicago Public Schools renewed a $10 million school resource officer contract with uh, the police department, Chicago Police Department. That's a decline from previous years, but... How would you like to see that money spent elsewhere in the district, Anna?
4: I would love to see it going into more restorative justice practices. I would love to see like every CPS school, not just have part to have a peace room where these students can come and focus on social and emotional learning, learning learning. Mm-hmm. Instead of us going into the first thing to do, a student in a classroom goes right into doing a do now. And I feel as they should be asked, How are you feeling? Like, we need. More of that, bringing those cultures, because how can a student f- focus on working curriculum when it's things that's going on that need to be addressed first before they can even focus? So I feel as we we need to put that money into mentors, more programs, and things that the students are, are going to enjoy, like not them feeling that they have to come, they have to come to school because their parents are telling them.
1: We'll have to leave it there for now. That's Anna Durr and Ling Young from Southside Together. Organizing for Power or Stop Chicago. Thank you both for joining us. This episode of Reset was produced and mixed by Marie Mendoza. If you liked this episode, subscribe and tell a friend. Tomorrow on the podcast, we'll dig into the war in Ukraine, six months after Russia began its invasion. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you for listening. Back with more soon.